Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian in Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Today we read Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43 two very different stories of miraculous healings that are intertwined in the way that maybe all of our lives are. One, a girl at the threshold of womanhood and at the threshold of death. The other, a woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years, the entirety of the girl's life. These stories made us wonder about the flow of faith in the world, in us and between us. They made us question our sense of what is truly urgent and reflect on the factors in our own minds as we make that determination over and over again. And at the end of the day, they reminded us that the miracle of these stories is a restoration to everyday life in our bodies and in our communities. Sometimes it's easy to forget that these things alone are a pretty good miracle. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby. How are you? Hey, Amy. I'm good. I got this song stuck in my head because once a week, my daughter's elementary school has a little like morning assembly where parents are invited. And so this morning I went to her morning assembly and they sing this little song about my personal code. (laughs) And so like it it starts with like your hands folded and you're in this very like angelic voice singing about your personal code. And then it like has like a breakdown and it gets kind of funky and then it sings all about how I need a personal code. And so, but then it I tells you. I keep thinking you, of like a pin number when you say that. <laughs> no, it's like the way I'm going to live my life. My personal code. Do, 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 do. But then it spends like the whole rest of the five minute song telling you what should be in your code. So it's oh, like. Oh, that's not very personal. <laughs> so what you're really saying is we want us to follow your code. Yes. School. That's but we're right. going to call it our personal code. So we feel some sense of ownership brainwashing. But now I'm thinking about it. I'm singing that song and I'm like, yes, I do want to be excellent. I do want to have character. <laughs> <laughs> it totally works. Okay. Uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, my elementary school had a uh, motto, I guess. It was called, the school's name was Boyd Elementary School. It's named after like an early superintendent or something. And uh, the motto was, Boyd Elementary students and teachers, we are the best. Oh. And my mom was really distressed by this, that she felt like we were sort of elevating ourselves above yeah. other people and that there was like this weird sort of egotism Yeah. in our motto. And I just remember feeling really sort of pulled between those poles of my mom saying like, you don't need to walk around saying you're the best. Like that's actually not don't do that. Yeah. And my school telling us that we should cheer that and wear it on our shirts. Yeah. <laughs> that is a, that's a lot to deal with as a, as a young child. 
You know, elementary school, they re- they have a lot of power with their mottos and their songs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't. They, they totally do. do. Mm-hmm. My uh, daughter's school, their motto, they have this little song. And the the main part of it is where where we can be safe and respectful and act responsibly. <laughs> oh, that's catchy. Like, yeah. And then you can do a little like, rawr, because they're like, their mascot <laughs> is the panther. So it's like, rawr. And it makes me oh, laugh. Wow. But it's not like we're awesome. It's like, let's all yeah. be on our best behavior today. No, yeah. that's, that's very like earnest. They go hard. They go hard in on the like good behavior stuff in yeah. public schools we these are days from what I can tell. Tigers. Yeah. <laughs> we are the best behaved <laughs> panthers that ever were. Oh, Bobby, today we are reading from Mark chapter 5. And we're picking up one verse after where we left. There's no gap at all. Our verses today are start in verse 21, go to the end of the chapter, 43. Since, I mean, we read through verse 20 last time, so there's no (laughs) catch-up that we need. Right. But will you just sort of resituate us? Like, what, what just happened as we're heading into this next verse? I feel like the mindset might be important. Yeah, so we were on the other side of the lake in the previous verse in the, in Gentile territory, in the land of the Gerasenes. So when we pick up here in verse 21, we're back in Galilee. We're back in Jewish territory where Jesus had been just previously when we were reading all those parables and everything back in chapter four. So we've just had this brief interlude where Jesus has gone, gone across the lake, expelled the demons in Gentile territory, and now coming back to Jewish territory. That's just keeping track of like where we are relative to Jewish, non-Jewish areas seems like the key to me. Is there anything else you would say about the gap between verse 20 and 21? (laughs) Only on Bible (laughs) where we spend five minutes (laughs) talking about that. (laughs) I don't think there's anything else we need to raise up just from the beginning. But I'm going to just read this introductory section first. So if there's anything else you want to add, we can. Yes. And then we get two really interesting stories of healing in the rest yeah. of this chapter. So. By the way, Amy, I should say this story that we have was two stories, as you're saying. And these stories have a technique that Mark is well known for. The technical term is intercalation. The more common term is sandwiching, which <laughs> I, I kind of like. <laughs> the commoner's term. But Mark does this a number of times. It's not unique to Mark. Like other ancient storytellers did this as well. But Mark really does it in some pronounced ways. And this story is the sort of flagship example. Basically what it means is he starts telling one story and then he interrupts it to tell a different story. And then he comes back to the first story at the end. Mm. So you've got like sandwich one is the, or story one is the bread that's on either Mm -hmm. side. And then story two is the, filling that's in the middle of the sandwich. Mm. And so it sort of forces, like, A, it gives you some dramatic tension, Mm -hmm. but it also kind of invites the interpretation of the stories in light of one another in a way that would be very different if you just told one story and then told the other story after it. Enfolding a story into the middle of another story changes the way you think about both stories. So we're going to see that today. Mm. It's just worth probably flagging that up front. No, I'm really glad you pointed that out. And uh, I like, I, I mean, of course, I, I saw it, but I didn't note it as a, as a technique like that as I was reading. So it'd be interesting to draw that out a little bit. 
Okay, so I am reading from the NRSV as I usually do, and I'm going to pick up in chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathering around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Okay, that's really just, that's that's the bread, right? The first yes. piece of bread? Okay, that's the first piece of bread. Fantastic. You know, you were talking before about how the story right before this, they were in Gentile territory, and it it feels like it was a pretty different scenario. Like, he was not in the middle of town surrounded by a crowd. He was kind of in this, you know, graveyard, and there was just this one guy who had a a terrible demon in him. And I just feel like such a contrast here that now he's got this crowd of people pressing against him. I mean, it tells us twice in these four verses that he's got a crowd pressing against him. I think, okay, this is probably a weird question, but I'm trying to, the question in my head is like, it it almost feels harder to be in this environment. Like it feels so overwhelming now Mm. to have all these people around him. And before it was just him and the demon. Yeah. I don't know. Do you, like, does that, does that juxtaposition uh, stir anything up for you or not? Not so. That's so interesting. I never really framed it that way for myself because when he was across the lake, like he was in the least Jewish (laughs) life place you could be. Like it was Gentile territory. He was in a graveyard in a herd of pigs with a demoniac. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? like, yeah. It is very yeah. impure in the sense of Levitical purity law, like just signs of impurity kind of all around. And there's no people there. And when the people do show up, what they do is ask him to go away. Yeah. yeah. Here, we're in Jewish territory, which doesn't have any of that, like graveyards and pigs and demoniacs. I mean, at least in this moment. Mm-hmm. And the people are really excited to see him. But you're right, it does. And especially when you go back and read Mark 1 to 4, where Jesus is constantly trying to do stuff and people are pressing him, digging Mm -hmm. through the roof to get to him. You talked last two times ago about how Jesus had to get on a boat to back away so he could teach. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's an interesting contrast, the response, how how excited people are on this side of the lake where they were not at all excited about him on the other side of the lake. But both of those have problems of their own. Both of those have problems on their own. Yeah, and it had me thinking almost back to like the story of right after Jesus' baptism when he's sent into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. And he's just there, you know, just him and Satan in the wilderness with wild beasts and angels. And yeah, at the time that I read that story, I was like, that's so horrible. That is the hardest thing. Yeah. Like that he's being asked to do the hardest thing right now. And for some reason at this moment, I'm like, this is actually also really hard. Just yeah. different hard. And John the Baptist was living in the wilderness. And we had a conversation then about maybe yes. it's easier to live out the values of the kingdom yeah. when you're by yourself. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the community can be really supportive and uplift you and make you feel like the work you do is important, which certainly they seem to think the, the work Jesus is doing is important, but it's not that like quiet clarity right. that you might have right. when it's just you and a demon. <laughs> <laughs> a legion of demons. A legion, a legion of demons, yes. Okay, but then there's this one guy in particular, Jairus. And the text points out that he is a leader in the synagogue. Yes. How do you think that detail could be important? So the word that's being used there is archisynagogos, which means like the head of the synagogue. Mm. I actually think the translation, the CEB has one of the synagogue leaders. Mm Mm-hmm. I really think it's better to translate it the leader of one of the synagogues. Mm. And mm-hmm. so he is not said to be a rabbi or a scribe. or He's like the any... board president. That's exactly what <laughs> I was going to say. He's the synagogue president. He's a lay leader mm. who is in charge of the congregation. You might know more about what that actually means than I do, but his job is not so much the ritual leadership mm-hmm. of the community, but mm-hmm. the functional leadership of the community and gathering people and making sure things are paid for and all and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, and he's not, you know, as a as a layperson, he's not his role is not to be the legal expert right to guide the community in matters of Jewish law. Right. And the the synagogue community is obviously very important to him. Yes. He's he is certainly not someone who bucks the system. No. He is not someone who is somehow trying, like he he represents the system. Right. But just sort of a different dimension of it. So he's probably the individual of the highest standing in his community, something mm-hmm. like that. I think I think synagogue president is a good way of thinking about it. I was trying to translate that into Protestant speak. <laughs> I don't quite know what it would be in, in my community, but like, you know, one of the pillars of the community mm-hmm. kind of yeah. thing everybody looks up to, supports the community financially and personally and as deeply committed person of mm-hmm. faith who lives that out in sort mm-hmm. of a structured way. Yeah. Yeah. And that feels important to me to draw out because there is all, all you know, sort of bubbling tension at this point that will become much stronger tension yeah. later between a certain group of Jewish leaders and Jesus. But this guy doesn't seem to feel any tension between the faith that he expresses through the synagogue and his interaction with Jesus. I think that's exactly right. I mean, that is exactly right. And if we assume that Jesus has come back to Capernaum, I don't know that it's said here, but we've already encountered that the leaders, like the official religious leaders of this community a couple of times in chapter one, in a text we didn't read, they wanted to like, they, they saw Jesus casting out demons in the synagogue and they wanted to get rid of him in chapter, whatever that was, chapter two, when Jesus told the man his sins were forgiven, they accused him of being a blasphemer. And so we've had a couple of texts where the religious authorities are kind of already at tension with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jairus displays absolutely none of that. I don't don't know what the significance of that is, but it's Mm -hmm. absolutely true. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you want to pull out of this introduction or should we get to the, I don't know, meat or peanut butter? What do we want to (laughs) call the middle part of this? Well, I mean, I think it's important that, I mean, so what Jairus is asking for here is for Jesus to heal his daughter who's about to die. Yeah. 
And so there is an urgency mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about it and a trust, like the, the level of trust that Jairus seems to have in Jesus to go to him when his daughter is, I mean, we don't know what the issue mm-hmm. is, but she seems to be right on the brink of life and death. And Jesus is the one that Jairus has come to. And we had talked in that story about the four friends lowering the man through the roof in chapter two, about the faith of others having effect. And Mm -hmm. here we sort of see another example of that, or at least like that's the hope here, is that this Jairus's trust in Jesus is going to have effect for his little daughter who is about about to die. And so... Here's a man of some authority, respect, stature mm-hmm. in the community, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the position of begging. He's, you know, mm-hmm. he's down on his knees, uh, falls down at Jesus's feet and begs him. And so I don't know, I mean, I don't know quite how to unpack that, but the image of this important person begging at Jesus' feet on behalf of his daughter, I, so it's moving. And then there's some sense of like his status doesn't actually matter it doesn't get mm-hmm. him what he really wants which no is of course not and jesus doesn't seem to have any hesitation like there's no monk quote-unquote monkey business i mean it's not really yeah. a monkey business it would be like well have you know like there's no conversation yeah. about forgiving her sins or no conversation yeah. about let's talk about what's really going on here yeah like he says my daughter's about to die and jesus goes jesus goes that's exactly right that's so important he does he's not trying to make it a teaching moment No, that's exactly right. He's not trying to make it a teaching moment. He is compelled by this man. That's exactly right. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here. This month, Bible Worm has a special offer just for you. If you've ever thought about joining our Patreon, now is the time. For the month of January, we're giving all our subscribers access to the full range of Bible Worm features. If you join now at the Bible Worm supporter level, you can get early access to episodes weekly worship liturgies, and video Bible studies, all for just $4 for the month. If you've ever wanted to try out our Patreon, now's the time. We hope you'll join us. And now, back to this week's episode. Okay. Shall we go on? Let's go on. Okay. Then I'm picking up in verse 25. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have so many thoughts about this story, Bobby. 
But it starts out by telling us that she has uh, this been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. Do you imagine we're talking about menstrual bleeding? That is the way that I've always read that. I don't know that it's said anywhere in the text, but it, I think it's certainly suggested that way. What do you think? I mean, I, I, I don't know one way or the other, but I think, but the reason I ask is that a woman who is menstruating sort of in the Jewish system of things, it's like the time that you're menstruating is seen as a sort of categorically different time. Like you're in a kind of different state right. and the way a, you know, following traditional law, the way that a woman would interact with the world is different during that time. It's like, a, it's a more private time. There is less touch from other people. And we can say whatever we want about that from a feminist perspective or a modern perspective or how that played out for women at that time. But for our purposes now, I will just say it's a very different thing to be in that state for about a week every month right. than it is to be in that state for 12 years. No, I think that's so important, Amy. I appreciate your saying it that way. And, you know, the, a, a flow of blood, I think, would have conveyed that same sort of sense of it's ritual impurity is the issue that mm-hmm. one needs to be sort of protective of things having to do with life really is, I mean, if you sort of boil it down in Levitical law, it's processes, processes related to life and processes related to death are many of the things that are sort of communicate ritual impurity in the biblical text. So a flow of blood is, is one of them. If it's menstrual blood, it's a, it's related to the reproductive life process. If it's some other kind of blood, it's related to the world of death. And so people who are in those states are kept apart from everyone so that those things don't come then into contact with God in some way, like going to the temple mm-hmm. in that state of ritual impurity. So, so whatever the case, I think you're exactly right that for this woman, this flow of blood is not just a medical issue, but it also yeah. has placed her in this category where she really is not supposed to be interacting with yeah. or touching people being in public yeah. and that that goes has been going on for 12 years yeah. the way you said that is it's one thing to deal with it a week a month versus for 12 years in a row mm-hmm. is really important and you know in the ancient world people spent a lot of time either being pregnant or nursing their mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. and so yeah so women, it wasn't a week a month it yeah. wasn't a week a month yeah <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and so it's actually a fairly unusual thing and she's been experiencing it for for much longer than anyone should have to experience mm-hmm. that sort of isolation. And that really, you know, you're, you're, you're putting such a, po- a fine point on it that like, she's really not even supposed to be out in public right. in a big crowd like this. So already her, this is sort of an act of ritual rebellion yeah. that she is even here. Yeah, that's exactly right. So maybe that sort of answers my own next question, but the question is this. Why doesn't she try to get Jesus's attention? Like, why does she just touch his clothes? Couldn't she just ask? Couldn't she ask for healing? I'm so interested. You said maybe this answers my own next question. And so I'm curious what connection you're making there. I mean, I guess I'm wondering now if if she's afraid that the crowd would, that she would sort of put herself in danger by 
stating aloud this, you know, to this point sort of uh, uh, thing that's going on in her body that people might not be able to see and might not be aware of, that the the crowd would be distressed about it or maybe that she would think that Jesus would be angry about it. I don't know. But that she recognizes she is in a place she's not supposed to be. So it's not just that she needs healing. It's that she's already broken a pretty important social rule by being there. That makes so much sense to me, Amy. I, I think I, I think that's an, a really nice interpretation. There's also the added social norm in the ancient world that a woman shouldn't be addressing a man in public who is not related to her. So mm-hmm. she would have to also violate that norm. I think that I think that sense of danger I think is really a nice reading. There was a belief in the ancient world that certain kinds of healers could heal just by being touched. Mm -hmm. And so she probably has heard about Jesus. She probably comes from a world in which that was an understanding. And so she probably thinks here's the safe way for me to claim healing is just to touch him when he passes by and not make any deal out of it. And it works. It does work. And you know, I, I love, this is skipping ahead a little bit, but I just can't help myself, that the response of the disciples when Jesus says, who touched me? Yeah. Because it is such a reminder that, like, a lot of people have probably touched you, Jesus. Like, we're yeah. in a big old crowd of people. Like, <laughs> Yeah. But this was different. Something different happened. It says he felt the power go forth from him. Yes. I have two questions, and I can't figure out which one is more urgent. (laughs) I'll ask you. Okay, here's a question I'll ask you. I wasn't totally sure how to, like, voice Jesus in this part. Like, is Jesus angry? That is it sort of like, who who touched my clothes? (laughs) (laughs) Or curious? Or, I mean, because it doesn't seem that this has happened before where someone— something has happened that has had power go out from him that he didn't intend to send out. How do you, how do you read Jesus's emotional state in that question? I mean, there there's, I mean, the text is very reticent about giving us that. Yeah. Just based on what Jesus later says to her in the text, when he's, he just says, daughter, your faith has healed you go in peace. At least by that point. Yes. He's not angry. Whether that was her story like if it had been somebody else who touched him for some other reason, maybe maybe he would have been angry. I, I don't know. The way Mark tells the story is so interesting because, you know, the order of it, she touched him. Mm-hmm. Her bleeding stopped immediately. Mm-hmm. She sensed in her body that her illness had been healed. Jesus recognized power went out from him and said, who touched me? So Jesus... The woman has been healed by Jesus's touch, even though Jesus didn't intend Mm -hmm. the healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is fascinating. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think is important here is Jesus is in a crowd of people who are pressing in on him. Yes. And so he has been touched by a lot of people, but only this one, this woman has drawn power from him. Mm -hmm. And so I think she has sort of claimed a healing for herself and the way I want to read Jesus here is he, what he's doing is saying, who like, who had the power or who had the faith or who had the trust mm-hmm. to do that? 
And so he's really interested more than he's upset with her. Yes. That, I mean, and so you already have started to answer or maybe even answered the the other question that was competing for that slot in my mind, which was, if so many people are touching him and only her touch has this effect, what, why? Like, what was different about the nature of her touching his clothing versus all these other people? I mean, the way Jesus says it is, your faith has healed you. Yeah. And so it seems to be that she has a level of trust or a level of confidence or a level of hope or a level of desperation that she has a, she is believing this thing can help her in a way that other people, I guess, aren't. Right. They're there and they're interested in Jesus and they're following Jesus and they're curious and they're listening and all the stuff. Like these people are interested in Jesus, but there is something like she has some ingredient that it's almost like this chemical reaction, like her faith seems to open something that just normal touch would not. Yes. That's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. And I mean, if you start to unpack that theologically, I don't quite know where it ends up, but you know, we, we so often think of Jesus sort of, there's like this, like, do you trust me? I do trust Mm -hmm. you. Okay. Then, then I heal you. So Jesus is like mediating based on his sort of assessment of people who come to him. Here we have someone claiming the healing and being healed, and Jesus has nothing to do with it. I mean, the power comes from him, but he's not moderating or mediating or making decisions about that power. Mm-hmm. And so whereas you know, a couple stories ago we had four friends whose faith resulted in healing for their friend, now we have another un- sort of unusual situation in which a person can claim it can claim a healing for herself without having to go through the like steps of proper belief or confession or Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. Mm -hmm. Right. And again, here, there's no talk about uh, being forgiven sins or anything like that. Like it, it feels, this feels like a really different kind of story than the guy who like parachuted down through the ceiling. (laughs) It's a very different story. Amy, the other detail or another detail about this woman that I always find so compelling is in verse 26, the CEB has, she had Mm -hmm. suffered under the care of many doctors Mm -hmm. and had spent everything she had without getting any better. Mm -hmm. So the woman in this moment seems to be impoverished. She is probably socially isolated in ways that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. My understanding is in first century law, her, her hemorrhaging would have been grounds for divorce from her husband. Mm-hmm. So if she had been married and if she had a family, she likely doesn't any longer. I think because of the nature of this bleeding, she's not able to have children, at least at the beginning of this story. And yet there was a moment where she had enough financial resources to go to a bunch of doctors seeking healing. Mm -hmm. So this is not exactly the story of someone who is just sort of a poor person, 
but someone who has had access to finances and has been able to go to the medical system, has bankrupted herself Mm -hmm. in the medical system, and now has nowhere else to go. When you think of it that way, like the resonances with contemporary life and the way that so often people who have a an illness that is untreatable or difficult to treat go through all of their money and they end up being poor when they weren't. I love that you pointed that out because it really sort of underscores that she, she again, like she is not someone who tried to buck the system. Like she seems like she was part so part of you know typical society and bought into the dominant understandings of that society that when when these things happen to you what you do is you go to a doctor right and she went as far as she possibly could in that world and ultimately that world uh kind of booted her out yeah i have one more question about this part that is definitely impossible <laughs> At the end, Jesus says, your faith made you well. Faith in what? I mean, the way that I read it is faith in Jesus's capacity to heal. Mm -hmm. And so she really believed that enough that she took the risk and went out in the crowd and touched him. And she believed that that was going to heal her and, and therefore it did. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she believes that Jesus is the Messiah or something, but that, but that's not said in the text. Right. It's that she believes that she will be healed when she touches. I mean, that's what she says. Yeah. If I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. That's as far as she that's seems right. to have gotten with it. That's right. The other thing that's so interesting in this part of the text is, I mean, I, I'm with his disciples a little bit here, right? It's like they're in a huge crowd. The image that I have in my head is, my hometown of Clemson, which is about 10,000 people on a football Saturday, which is like 100,000 people. Mm. And it's just like people everywhere. And of course people are touching you. And we're on the way to heal this little girl who is about to die. Yes. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, come on, man. Like, what do you mean who touched me? Like, look around. But it seems so important to Jesus to find out. And then he has this interaction with this woman. So what do you think about why Jesus wants to know? He could have just said, oh, well, somebody got healed. (laughs) You know, Uh, like, why why does he seek out this woman, do you think? I mean... Okay, this is probably totally, like, total heresy, but, you know, that's fine. I'm not a member of the church. Like, I think this is the first time something like this has happened. I don't know that Jesus is aware that it can happen. What do you mean someone touched you and power went out from you? Like, I, I could read it either as he wants to know whose faith is so strong that they have the power to do that, or he... He think, or, or he just is like, what the, yeah, bleep just like what what happened? Like that was not his yeah. his disciples think he's just talking about someone bumped into him, but that's yeah. not what he's talking about. And he has felt something different uh, in his being mm-hmm. that they don't understand. Mm-hmm. So I think 
I guess I sort of read it as he just wants to know, like, what happened. Something yeah. categorically different happened here than just a crowd bumping into each yeah. other. And I need to know what that was. It's so interesting how different that story is than, you know, Jesus has healed other people. And then he has publicly healed other people and then told them not to tell anybody. That's true. Here, he privately heals somebody. So private that he didn't even know. And he's, then he makes a thing about it. And then he makes a public thing about it. Huh. And it might just be curiosity. I actually kind of like that interpretation yeah. just to say something has happened. This woman has had a faithfulness that Jesus has not seen before. And so he, yeah. he just wants to know. Sometimes I think also that, so this woman is in need of the physical healing of her hemorrhage, which she has already received. But you were talking before about her social isolation and her estrangement from the community and all of these things. And so for Jesus to pause in public and talk to her and to publicly announce your faith has made you well, you are healed of your disease, Mm -hmm. seems to me like an important piece of the, if you think in terms of the whole person, an important piece of the healing, not just that she's no longer physically suffering, but now the community knows this thing that has, because I mean, everybody probably knew her, right? (laughs) As the Mm -hmm. like the woman with the, the flow of blood or whatever. And so now he has said, you are well. And he's referred to her as daughter, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's just family language. And so Jesus is like, maybe we don't know anything about her actual family who don't seem to be anywhere in the story. But here is Jesus saying, well, I'll be your family or mm-hmm. you can be part of my family. And Elsewhere, Jesus has said, you know, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Well, those who believe in me. And so there's a sense in which there is this sort of alternative family that's being formed. And Jesus has invited her to be a part of that family. So he's restored her socially and he's restored her family connections, mm-hmm. which I think is necessary for the, for the whole healing of, of her. Can you imagine the courage it must have taken for her when she's already, she's gotten her healing and then Jesus turns around. And even if he didn't say it in a cross way. Right. I'm sure there was some urgency about his question. Yeah. (laughs) For her to just, you know, in fear and trembling, tell him the whole truth again in public. Yeah. I feel like that is, that is is yet further faith. That like, I'm just gonna. Yes. I'm just gonna lay it all out here. No, that's right. She's talking to this holy man. She's in a crowd where she's not supposed to be. She has touched him intentionally despite her state touched of impurity. Him despite her state of yeah, in t- intentionally touched a holy man despite her state of impurity. Yes, and so the I I I think you're exactly right. She must have been expecting that he was going to be angry, and he turns out not to be angry at all. Yeah. He just wants to know her a little bit. When he calls her daughter, it also reminds you that, oh, wait, there was another daughter in this story. It sure does. It sure does. Yeah. So should we pick back up with that other daughter? Let's do. Okay. So I'm picking up in verse 35. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. 
When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So I told you before that I didn't like particularly, um, I wasn't attuned to this uh, sandwiching, the, the intercalation that you mentioned earlier. But what I did feel was maybe like sort of an empathic overwhelm at all the people who seem to need mm-hmm. help so urgently. And while he has stopped just for a moment to interact with this mm. woman, it, it, you know, it, it, it became too late to, to, he, to heal the girl in the way that he was going to, yeah. <laughs> you know? And that, again, that just makes it, I, I think I have a fear of crowds, Bobby. I'm realizing I'm like projecting <laughs> a lot of this, but I'm like, it, it really, it's hard. It's hard to be in the middle of all the people who all do have some faith and want something from you. Yes. And they all want to connect with you at the same time. It's a lot. No, that's so important. And, you know, Jairus very much has come and expressed his faith as we mm-hmm. were talking about earlier. And Jesus has been responsive to him. Mm-hmm. And yet he's also been responsive to this other person. And that has right. led to this situation in which it appears at least as though he has not been able to live up to all of his commitments. I think it's interesting that we never hear anything else from Jairus in particular. Like we don't get any sense that he was like, come on, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, or, or, you know, Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe, but that is yes. just, you know, anticipating or, you know, yeah. it's not so hard, just so hard to imagine what Jairus must be feeling, but I don't know. How does that, are you surprised we don't hear anything else from him? Do we not need to hear anything else from him? You know, I had read the story so many times and I had never really noticed that Jairus never speaks here until I was prepping for today. And one of the commentators I was reading made a note of it, that it's just the people from his house who come and say, your daughter has died, so there's no point. Mm. But he doesn't speak. So we don't really know what's going on in his head. But it's so easy to like empathize with him and to think like what must have been happening in his head. And ultimately he does trust. I don't know if he fears or not. I think think he probably did fear. Mm -hmm. But he trusts and he goes and it turn and it turns out fine. One of the things that I oh you know Jairus is so fascinating to me because he's a person of high standing mm-hmm. in the community, and he is probably accustomed to people sort of deferring to him in the way that people of high status often become accustomed. Mm-hmm. And here we have this woman who is of no social standing whatsoever who interrupts Jesus. And Jesus takes the time to like talk with her and restore her to community and all of these things. And we could imagine Jairus 
carrying his privilege in such a way that he would be upset about that. Mm-hmm. And that maybe Jesus in some sense here is sort of redirecting our sense of like who matters most. We would expect that Jairus would be the priority here, but he's not. So maybe we too also like Jesus should think about what are the most urgent priorities. Jairus to his credit doesn't seem to complain. He doesn't mm-hmm. seem to you know, mm-hmm. try to play the status card. He just mm-hmm. stands there with Jesus and, and goes along with Jesus. So I, I don't know. I, I really like Jairus. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. We certainly could imagine that he has certain expectations given his standing in the world. But I, I think we also could hold him as a possible example of like holding those powerful positions and also not insisting on yes. any kind of privileged treatment. Yes. You know, it's it's unclear to me whether Jairus is not feeling hurried because he thinks Jesus is going to be able to handle whatever. Right. Or if that's not, I mean, Jesus hasn't risen anyone from the dead yet, has he? Like, he has I not. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think he had any reason to believe that that was a possibility. Yeah. So I don't tend to read his lack of urgency as he has so much faith that he's really yeah. unperturbed. I read it more as a recognition that like there's a lot of suffering in this community. Yeah. And I don't know, like not not trying to push your case to the top of the list always, always. I like that reading. because I mean, he's very clearly desperate in the beginning. Yes, in the, he is. The first piece of bread. He yes. is you know, begging Jesus. He's not carrying his privilege there either. He does not sort of say like, you owe it to me because I'm a good member of the community. He falls down and begs Jesus. I think he's still feeling urgent, but you're right. His sort of way of approaching it is to say, there's a lot of need in the world. And my situation is not the only situation that matters. It's a good, it's a good reminder of how, how he might carry privilege. The other thing is that woman's situation, like it's been going on for 12 years. Yeah. She could get healed tomorrow. <laughs> you yes. know, yes. little girl here is like on the brink about of death. to die. Yes. That's so right. how Jesus is sort of adjudicating that situation and why everybody seems to be okay with it. Like, I don't know, like you can, you could imagine triaging this situation differently. Yeah. You know, I was thinking this morning, I am, um, some mornings I run, but some mornings I don't run. I sit in front of a dark window <laughs> just try to find some quiet before and like sort of watch the color change in the sky. And, mm. and I was thinking this morning about the, the times that you can sort of plan for what your day is going to be and the times that you just have to interact with whatever is happening yes. in front of you. Yep. And I like to overplan for everything, but that's not actually how the world seems to work. <laughs> That's not right. working too well for me. And I feel like in some ways this is this is a good reminder of that or example of that because Jesus just seems to be, he responds to Jairus when Jairus is right in front of him. And then this thing with the woman just happens. Like it, it, it just happens. And Jesus responds to what is happening in the moment. I mean, I guess he didn't have to talk to her, but. Right. Yeah. Okay, so. He gets this terrible announcement. Your daughter is dead. There's no no need to hurry now. Right. And Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. And I think because, specifically because of that sort of intercalation with the other story where it seems like 
the faith of the woman fundamentally changed what was possible. Yes. I I wonder, how how imperative is it that he believe at this point? Or is it believe like— That is so interesting. Is it believe like, we have to go back there anywhere, so I'm just going to go, like, take a deep breath and follow along? Or is it like, you have to believe in your— Believe, believe. Now, I, I, that, that's such a nice question, Amy. And the way that I read it is very much the way of here Jesus is giving faith to Jairus and mm. saying, it, it's going to be okay. Trust mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Not if you trust me enough, I'll do this. Mm-hmm. That second way reminds me <laughs> every Christmas I watch Elf. And at the end of Elf, you know, there, there's mm-hmm. that like. Yeah, the Christmas cheer. If you only you believe sing. enough that the sleigh will fly. Like it, this is not, yeah. this is not that. Yeah. But when you read it that, when you read it that other way, it's sort of two models of what faith can look like. One is mm-hmm. this woman who is unknown to Jesus, trusts him enough, believes in him enough to claim healing for herself, unbeknownst to Jesus. Jairus is is sort of the opposite of that, where Jesus is the source of the faith mm-hmm. that is being given to Jairus mm-hmm. saying, trust me, I've got this. It's all going to be fine. So Jesus is reassuring him in that sense, where it's mm-hmm. just her sort of hoods mm-hmm. by in the first mm-hmm. sense. And we've got sort of two different models of what faith might look like. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I have almost this model of like, not in a model. I have I have almost this image in my head of you know, when something really bad happens and sometimes someone will just sort of look you in the eye and say like, okay, like not like you have to believe enough to keep walking with me. Like yeah. that's just believe enough to do the next, yeah. just do the next thing. You don't have to imagine that you know how this is all going to turn out. Right. And we go back into this more secretive yes, stance very here. Much. Right. So he has been surrounded by this whole crowd and he hasn't tried to ditch the crowd. I didn't actually even realize it was a possibility until now when he seems <laughs> to just dispense with the crowd. Yeah. Get out of here. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you have I mean, do you have anything to sort of to say about this? Like what in this moment something something seems to shift. Like Jesus sees something is shifting here. Now this whole thing is so interesting. He sends the people away. Then the, I guess these are probably professional mourners who are out there crying and making a commotion and wailing in the oh, way that's that interesting to think funerals about, yeah. might have been in the, in the ancient world. And Jesus almost makes himself look foolish. Yes. By saying, oh, she's not dead. She just fell asleep. And they're all like, ah, ha, ha. And then when he raises her from the dead, He's trying to, he's setting it up so that nobody actually knows that he raised mm-hmm. her. They just thought, oh, well, actually she was sleeping. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so he's diverting attention from this really dramatic miracle that has happened. Whereas before he was calling attention to this really subtle miracle that had happened. I just wonder if it's about Jesus sort of wanting attention to be properly directed. Mm-hmm. And so in the case of the woman with the flow of blood, he had wanted people to see that she was healed so she could be restored to the community, and that's what mattered. In this case, restoring the girl to health and her to her family is what matters. 
and Jesus getting the credit for it is not matter. So he doesn't want the sort of like, look what I can do to overshadow the life that has been restored here. I don't know. That's kind of as far as I can get with that. Okay. This is an even weirder question. Why does he, why does he do it? Like this is not Jesus's mission to bring the dead back to life. That is not why he was sent like literally in their bodies right now. This is, this is not the purpose of his being on earth. Right. He has a very small, only, you know, parents and a couple people actually see this happen. So it's not, the purpose is not so that people will realize he is categorically different from any other leader in the community and maybe be willing to trust other things about him. So why does he do it? I mean, I think at the story level, the reason he does it is because he has compassion for Jairus and I guess for the girl too, but sort of secondarily. And he had said he would do this thing. And so he's going to do it. And Jesus wants there to be life and healing where it is possible. And so he simply followed through at that level to restore this family. At a theological level, if we read it sort of post Mark 16, a sort of post resurrection Mm -hmm. of Jesus, then you can read the story as sort of a prolepsis of the ultimate resurrection which is to say in the way that Jesus was capable of defeating death and raising the the dead girl back to life here in this little moment, so too Jesus is able to defeat the power of death on the cosmic scale Mm -hmm. and raise everyone to life. And that's a really nice message if you live in a world in which people do die while they're waiting for healing to say, just believe, just trust, don't be afraid. If you read it sort of in the cosmic sense, like there is a, there is a power of life that is more powerful than the power of death, and it will ultimately win, even if it seems like in this moment on this side of the resurrection, like you lost. Mm-hmm. That's what I got. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. Are you surprised that after this healing, it's not like now go and pray or now (laughs) go repent or go whatever. It's like, get this girl a snack. Yeah. She has had a day. She has had a day. Yeah. How do you, how do you read that detail? I mean, I, I, I love that line. Mm -hmm. I just sort of read it as like returning to the normal patterns of, life. Yeah. yeah. You've been restored to live your life. So go, so go and do that. Mm-hmm. This whole scene is so intimate. Jesus takes her hand. Mark reports Jesus's speech in Aramaic. So, mm-hmm. you know, I guess Jesus probably was speaking Aramaic anyway, but it sort of adds to that sense of like speaking to her in the vernacular and like small crowd, the sort of whisper. It's just like these little I mean, it's an enormous miracle, right? Raising her from the dead, but it's done in such an intimate, subtle, personal way. And then the result of it is like, okay, like, get back to your life. Yeah. What do you do with that detail? The snacking. Hmm. 
I mean, I think I see it. I read it pretty similarly. Like you have been brought back to life in your body and you need to orient to life in your body. Like that's, that's what human life is. Like yeah. I've, like I've jumped the car for you, but you need to drive it around the block. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, recharge the you know, yeah. Like, you, yeah. yeah, but you should, you should return to return to regular life. Like that's the gift you've been given your regular yes. life in your body. I love that way of saying it. And that's also what the woman in the earlier part of the story has been mm-hmm. gifted as a return to life as, mm-hmm. as usually live like a normal life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We also get the detail here that this girl who we've sort of thought of as a little girl mm-hmm. up until now is actually 12, Yeah, which in the ancient world is sort of the transition point between, I mean, it's puberty. So it's a transition mm-hmm. point between being a little girl and being a woman. And we, we had talked about maybe Mary, the mother of Jesus being about this age in that story mm-hmm. of her giving birth to Jesus. And so this is like, she almost didn't get to become a woman. Mm-hmm. And so that's been sort of given back to her, which draws this interesting connection to the woman in the earlier part of the story who has been also been given back her sort of adult womanhood. I don't quite know yeah. how you connect those two figures, but I think they're, I think that 12 is, because she also had the flow of blood for 12 years. So they're being connected together mm-hmm. in some kind of a way. I think that's right. Like, I think the fact that she's 12 draws a different kind of connection to that middle story. Yes. You know, maybe underscoring some of the precarity of life in a body. Like, yeah. you know, you could die right when you're 12. You could pass through 12 and then start hemorrhaging all the time. And so you can live, but not near anyone else. And there are a lot of, it sounds so corny to say, but like a lot of just really enormous blessings in everyday, regular old life that not everyone gets all the time. And that it's really easy to forget that they're not, they're not givens. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you want to say about this girl and her healing before we start to draw to a close? I don't think, I don't think so. Well then what's rising up for you today, Bobby? These are some wild stories. Yes. And there's so many ways that you could go from here. And I like, so many of them. I think the one that is sort of most occupying me right now is this contrast between the two people in this story who who ask for or claim healing. That is Jairus and the woman. And the way their stories get in, enmeshed here such that Jairus who is the one of status, the one who is known in the community, the one who's respected, the one who is a leader in his religious community, probably the one who is used to people deferring to him, gets a response from Jesus, but he gets put on hold in ways that must have been really stressful for him. Mm -hmm. In order for Jesus to heal a woman who is a socially isolated in a lot, I presumably a physical pain for a very long time, who has lost all of her money in the medical system and is just struggling in all the ways, but probably could wake up tomorrow and keep living. You know, she, her, her healing is not urgent in the, she might die tomorrow since like Jairus's daughter is. 
And yet Jesus pauses and lingers over her. And to me, that's just so instructive about how we think about who is in need of healing and who is a priority and what sort of healing matters. That here, this person who has lost all of her community not only receives healing in her body, but also receives dignity and respect and restoration to community from Jesus, who takes the time to get to know her and hear her story and publicly pronounce that she should be restored to the community. All the while, this sort of more privileged person is waiting in the wings. There's something really profound about that to me and reorienting to where does our attention go and to what kinds of healing do we think of as healing and what sorts of people do we think of as worthy of our lingering over them. And for Jairus to be able to be that person who is used to all of people responding to him and yet stepping back and letting Jesus do his healing the way he wants to do his healing. And ultimately he does get what he's asking for, just not in the time he was expecting it, I think is a really lovely model for how one might carry one's own privilege. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I think I'm ending up, although it overlooks a lot of other amazing things one could do. I mean, that's always the case. I really like that last turn of phrase you used that, that Jairus does get, I don't know. I don't remember exactly how you said it, but Jairus does get what he needs, but it doesn't unfold exactly the way he expects it to. Right. Or on the timeline that he had Mm -hmm. wanted it to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about you, Amy? What are you seeing in this text? Bobby, I feel like I come sort of in and out of this state of peace with the healing stories. <laughs> yeah. And there are some weeks where where I can really see like, okay, the where it feels clear to me, like the point of the healing story is not everyone will be healed. This is not right. an example for what you can expect. <laughs> it is the rules that you think govern reality or the, the most obvious ones are are not true or they're not real. Like there is something more true that might be quieter or harder to see in the world or harder to prove, but that thing is true and you need to plug into that thing. Mm-hmm. I've, I mean, I felt sometimes in reading, especially the story of the, the resurrection of the girl, it, it felt more like a like a straight up denial of a hard thing that actually is part of yeah. life. Like what I yeah. want is for Jesus to somehow make it okay that our bodies are going to die. Right. And help us deal with that because it's true. Yes. And if you like really squint your eyes at this story, you can get there as you were saying, like if you think of it in light of post-resurrection Jesus, like what this means for sort of a broader picture and also you know, someone is reading this text whose 12-year-old daughter died. Right. And just that that was what happened. <laughs> so I guess in some way I'm struggling with this text because it today, at least, it's almost feeling like distracting to me because it's offering me exactly what I wish were true. Right. 
that our bodies don't die. And I, and I just, and I, it seems a little, I don't know, unfair to ask a human reading this story not to grab hold of that. But I feel like that's what, that's what I think the story is asking us to do is not to like, yes, we are people who dwell in bodies. And so it feels like sugar to, for someone to say like, maybe when your body dies, it didn't really die. And so I just am feeling like I need to, I need to, it makes me work really hard to, to keep readjusting the horizon to be like, that's, that can't be what this story is about. Because if that is all this story is about, then it, it doesn't have a very big application beyond this story. No, I appreciate your saying it that way. And that, I mean, that's exactly the right struggle. Mark, of course, does believe in a resurrection. And the Christian gospel does point to a resurrection. And so it's it's not exactly that your body doesn't die, but that the death of your body is not the end of the story. And, and I... And I I agree with you. And one of the reasons that I'm drawn sometimes to Ecclesiastes is because it gives us the frailty of our bodies Mm -hmm. and doesn't offer us anything else. And so we have to just sort of deal with the frailty of our bodies and the frailty of memory. This story is offering something on the other side of that. In In the immediate instance for this girl, in the big instance, I think, for the post resurrection community. But it's it's soft selling it in my mind. Like it's, it's such a quiet part of the story. And so I struggle with this too. Like how do you both believe in a resurrection, which Christians for the most part do, and also not just gloss over the actual pain and difficulty of living a human life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't have a great answer for that, but I, th- no, I think the story gets us in that territory. And I, and I really appreciate your um, drawing out, you know, part of part of what's hard is that I don't believe in bodily resurrection. <laughs> right. right. So, and I should also say, just for the record, like there are Jews who do. I mean, Ezekiel thirty-seven is, you know, can these dry bones live? Yeah, they do. And are you know, the, yes, that is, it's in there in Jewish belief too. It's just not if if you don't hold that belief as I don't, then thinking about how to read this text meaningfully is a little harder. No, I think that's so important. And also for many Christians, the resurrection becomes the whole story, like the whole human story, the whole Bible Mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. And in this story, the point is exactly that the resurrection of this little girl and therefore the resurrection is not the main point of the story. The main point Mm -hmm. of the story is the healing of the woman who needed healing in the meantime and so I think this text is uh, is trying to get at the, yes, there is a resurrection, so don't be afraid. And yet, there are real people really suffering right now who need your attention. And so we've got to keep one, we've got to keep mm-hmm. our focus here, mm-hmm. even while we hold this belief mm-hmm. that there is something else possible beyond the grave. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a helpful point. That's a, I think that's a really beautiful point to end on, that all of this should draw us back to the story in the middle. Is that usually how it works in Mark, that the story in the middle is where our eyes should go, or you wouldn't say that? They they inform each other, but probably the story in the middle is the place where your eyes should go. Yeah, Interesting. If you're, 
the outside story is helping you interpret the middle story. I think that's a fair way of reading it. Bobby, next week we are reading a story that has not been in uh, the narrative lectionary as we've done it in the past. Um, right. It's from chapter six. So I'm excited to uh, read a story I haven't seen before. Sometimes yeah, I, don't, I have some I, I, pretty wild questions about such stories. Yeah, this one so. is a story I honestly don't really know what to do with. It's the beheading of John the Baptist, and it's quite a complicated text that I don't often talk about. So I'm looking forward to it. Wonderful. Good. Well, I look forward to it too. Until then, be well. Thanks for talking. All right. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our newest supporters, Marty Hazelrig, Matthew Redrich, Jack Cabanis, Jill Boyd, Joy Church, Tara Pennington, Craig Mead, Becky D, Paul Williams, Carolyn May, Sammy Johnson, Isaiah Friesen, Stacey Imes, Melissa Richer, Paul Brubaker, Tom DeGroote, Beth Ann Stone, Stephanie Sorga, Jillian Rooney, Althea Tisk, Lori Leiter-Bright, Myra Feeney, and Charlene M. Next week, we'll pick up with Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 30. Until then, keep on digging.